Thank you all very much for coming. Um, the Archers on Radio 4 is at 7, if you're desperate. Um, don't worry about what's on Radio 3 at 7. I've forgotten, but we'll be reminded. Um, thank you all very much for coming. It's a great, great thrill um, that Roger has come. Um, there are sort of two or three particular reasons why it's very appropriate that he's come to St. Peter's. Uh, one, for those of you who don't know, that this college has a fabulous, fabulous musical set-up uh, headed by Roger Allen, the dean, uh, and the standard of the choir uh, is mesmerically good. Um, so that's one reason. Um, the second is because Roger was my sparring partner uh, for many years at the BBC, and of my many entertaining sparring partners, uh, was pretty well the most. Uh, and third, and this is um, a moment of revelation, Roger's father was a student at St. Peter's. Um, and uh, Frank Wright uh, came here just before the war, was then shot down in an RAF plane, uh, was detained um, at Stalag for a few years before he could resume his studies here. He did history and then was ordained subsequently as an Anglican priest. Uh, and I found this out relatively recently, and to my amazement, had forgotten to tap Roger up for any money. Um, <laughs> but it's never too late. Um, uh, but that is in itself a fantastically poignant connection. And this is Roger Wright's first time at St. Peter's, his father's old college. Um, so it could not be better or more appropriate. Um, the format is going to be alarmingly simple. I'm going to ask Roger some questions, um, and he will answer them, occasionally ducking and weaving in time-honoured BBC fashion. Your job is to be bloodhounds for the truth, um, and if you find uh, you're not getting enough satisfaction, I'll make certain that at the end of 35 or 40 minutes of chat, uh, you've got a chance yourself to put your own questions to Roger. So it's as simple as that. We're just going to talk. Roger will be doing most of the work, um, but I will lob a few questions in his direction and then I'll throw it over to you and we'll run for just about an hour or thereabouts. So I hope that is all that needs to be explained for the time being. And then when we do ask for questions, there'll be uh, stick mics so that we can all make sure that we're hearing your words of wisdom. So I'm going to warm Roger up by, and we haven't rehearsed this um, bit of it or indeed any of it, I'm just going to ask him some questions about preferences and ask him to uh, elucidate what his preferences are uh, with perhaps a sentence or two of explanation. So, um, Handel or Haydn, and why? This is the point at which you realise that there is no rehearsal taking place at, at all. Um, so, so, I'm not, so I'm not allowed to say how ridiculous they're both great composers and how can you possibly choose between two such different figures, am I? If no, I am, no, I'll no, say no. that. You're, you're, you're not allowed to do that, okay. because that will mean the rest of the questions will fall aside with remarkable speed. I may not answer that way to every single question. Obviously, no, no. I don't know which kind. Handle. Good, because I was going to tell you that they're both dead, and therefore they can't be too offended. So Haydn will, Haydn will survive the strain. Although Haydn was a great, great, great composer. Okay. And if only he'd written fewer symphonies, we'd hear them all, all the time. Very good. Monteverdi or um, Talis? It's a really high level of questioning, this, isn't it? <laughs> um, uh, it's either Pass or Monteverdi. Um, that counts, by the way, in BBC terms as Monteverdi. Okay. Um, Lancashire or Yorkshire Lancashire. Club? Lancashire. <laughs> I, I don't actually recognise as a as a Lancastrian. I was um, Man Manchester-born and, and, well, I don't know whether the other bit, certainly Manchester-born, um, and I don't... Wh what was the name of the other place you were going to mention? <laughs> Another county somewhere over the Pennines. And because I happen to know that Roger is an extremely keen and good amateur cricketer, do you sometimes go to sleep after a long day at Radio 3 and think, in my other life, I should have been playing Test Match cricket? Um... I, I always go to sleep thinking there was no possibility of my ever being a professional cricketer. Um, but um, always, I think, think better of some of the few shots or good balls that I'd actually bowled than would, was probably true in, in, in reality. 
Um, but yes, no, cricket is always in my mind. Okay. Um, CDs or iPods? Um, well, both, but I, but I have so many CDs, um, but also use my iPad and iPhone for, for music consumption, but so many CDs, and they're still like hardback books, um, a source of great joy. Mm, good. Okay, now, now, now let's go to the orchestra. Um, flutes or horns? <coughs> we're, almost, we're almost over. The torture is coming to what? an end. Uh, could you be more precise about which sort of flutes and which sorts of horns? <laughs> I did Radio 4, you did Radio 3. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> um, uh, radio 2 or Classic FM? Um, I listen to both. Uh, I probably... Um, I don't listen to, to either a huge amount, um, but, I, but I, I do listen to both. If you were to say uh, 5 Live or Classic or 5 Live or, or Radio 2, it would be 5 Live. If you were to say Radio 4... Or either of those, it would be Radio 4. But, but frankly, most of my time is spent listening to Radio 3. Not surprisingly. 90 to 93 FM and on digital radio. And online. Can I say that the Director General will be very relieved that the controller of Radio 3 listens to more Radio 3 than he does to 5 Live. Um, so this is the most powerful classical music broadcaster in Western Europe. Um, the Radio 3 budget is north of £50 million. The problems budget is north of nine million pounds, and then you run a whole bunch of orchestras. Uh, Four hundred and fifty people uh, allegedly report to you in some shape or form. You may not have known this, but there are four hundred and fifty people who hang on your every word. Uh, just talk me through how you got there. Um, when did you discover you had a passion for classical music? How young? Um, very young. Um, that, that there's a there's a, a story around which which is actually true of my writing as a I think a twelve year old to to the third program to Radio Three um, requesting. I'd already worked out I think how to get a request onto Radio Three. It was a program called uh, Your Concert Choice and also Your Midweek Choice. There were two request programs um, then. Um, so this was uh, late 60s, so it would already be Radio 3, became Radio 3 in 67 um, from the third programme. Um, and I had requested Delius's piano concerto because I knew it wasn't very long because the, the, there was a possibility that it's a sort of piece that they might like to, like to play and indeed within, either because they never got any other requests or because it just fitted the bill within a couple of weeks of my writing, um, I, I got that piece played. And, uh, and so much of this, I think, is, I've got to, to say, is a result probably my, my brother, who's a few years older, who is the real musician in the family, um, organist, conductor, arranger, and just a, a brilliant natural musician, um, something I, I never was and never will be. Um, and so there was probably an awful lot of music around the house because of, because of Simon. Um, and uh, you know that was something that uh, I followed through through church choir. Um, always loved doing that, and there was never a point at which I, I think I you know, sensed any point of rebellion against some of those things which you know, a, a church family life might have brought up, simply because I was loving the music so much. But you did play. I mean, you're a cellist. No, I'm not. I mean, I. I mean, I, I, I can play the piano reasonably well, and I can play the cello really, really badly. Um, so, and I, and I, and I have sung. But, I, but, 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 you know, I, there is such a difference between people like me, um, who, who love making music and will do it in the sort of confines of the home, um, and making music with the rest of the family, and people who are musicians. And there's a really, you know, I studied music, but there's still a, a, a real difference. Matthew Paris, when he was here in the spring, talked about circumstance and luck and freaks as explaining his career. And there was a little artifice in that, I think, because Matthew is Matthew. Um, and he began doing law and then randomly ended up as being the journalistic genius he is. In your case, it looks, as it were, the other way around, that probably at a very early stage you were dead set on doing what you're now doing. But, but that's, that's only benefit of hindsight, isn't it, really? Um, and I think that you know, I, I have been 
very fortunate to be asked to do certain things at, at different stages in, in my career. And I can look back um, at you know, all sorts of key moments, and those have mostly been about you know, inspirational figures. You know, I'm, I'm not unusual in, in, in that respect, um, who then would um, have given me the chance to do certain things. And who, were, who were the sorts of people who inspired you? Um, well, there were, there were there were school teachers. I mean, I was lucky enough to go to Cheatham School of Music in in, in Manchester, um, and was there before it was a specialist music school. Um, so, so enjoyed cricket and rugby as well as as well as music. Um, and the school became a specialist music school uh, when I was, I suppose, in the sort of second or third year of the of the upper school. Um, and, and at that point, indeed, this is where you may be just um, misinformed. I was leading the cello section. Um, and then, of course, uh, all these brilliant young musicians came in when it became a specialist music school, and I went, went back each term, desk by desk, uh, and ended up in the percussion section, standing, <laughs> standing next to Wayne Marshall, who, who simply turned to me after the first rehearsal and said, you know, you haven't got any rhythm. So um, this was... Um, that was, that was my cello-playing career at, at, at school. And, and, and wonderful to have um, both musicians who were there, as I was, before it became a specialist school, people like P- Peter Donahoe, um, and then musicians who joined the school after it became a specialist school, like Stephen Huff and all of those other, um, David Hill, um, all of those other um, wonderful musicians who, who came to the school. Um, and a real privilege at that time to be, to be around them and also to know, you know my own musical frailties. And I was never, ever going to be somebody who was going to go on and, and play or, or, or sing. Um, but there was lots of good music making to be had. And so you know, there, were, there, were, there was one particular uh, music teacher that... Um, and, and I wonder the extent and worry about the extent to which this might happen now, who seemed to spend his entire time encouraging me to look at music and listen to music that simply wasn't part of the syllabus. Uh, Slipping pieces of music um, almost like um, um, some material that I shouldn't really be looking at. I mean, I remember him giving me some Penderecki scores and the Berg Chamber Concerto and Britain War Requiem and saying, you know, you shouldn't really be looking at this, but but here you are, and having some scores and and material. It happens at St Peter's. I can't talk about other colleges across the university. But but that sense of being let into a world is the best sort of of teaching, I think. Um, And, and, you know, this... And Radio 3, to a certain extent, I think, probably, again, with benefit of hindsight, represents that, this opportunity by serendipity to be let into this world, which, which the best of radio can do and take you somewhere else. And, and at that time, I think I'd also say the Henry Watson Music Library, which you know, a number of people uh, who were fortunate enough to grow up in Manchester would say was a really, really significant part of the, the music education, that open access uh, fantastic c- collection. So, so Saturday afternoons for me was school orchestra, um, the Henry Watson Music Library, and the Football Pink, which was the, the sporting paper of, of, of Manchester at that time. R.I.P. Um, you haven't spent all your career as a broadcaster, and indeed, um, unlike, unlike me, you had a kind of life sentence at the BBC, more or less. Um, you had a pre-BBC life, which makes you a rational human being. Um, so you worked both in the States, um, in what was then called the gramophone industry, and then subsequently you know, an incredibly senior job at Deutsche Grammophon, um, and then to the BBC. So, I mean, in broad terms, the differences between the two sorts of classical music career, broadcaster and involved with record labels. Well, well I suppose I was, I was fortunate in that um, I, I was invited into to the BBC by... Uh, one of those other uh, great um, inspirations for me, Sir John Drummond, um, and he he uh, suggested I come and work f- uh, with him to, to plan the BBC Symphony Orchestra. And so that was already both broadcasting, um, working as the senior producer for the orchestra, but obviously also in running the orchestra and doing its artistic planning. Um, and from from there, um, I was invited to go and work for the for the Cleveland Orchestra in the States, um, you know, one of the world's and still is one of the world's great orchestras. Uh, and the the connection there, I suppose, was Christoph von Dochnani, who had worked um, with the BBC Symphony Orchestra. And I got to know him there, and he was music director in, in, in Cleveland. So went to to do all of the artistic administration for the for the Cleveland Orchestra. Um, 
and from there, after a few years, to, to Hamburg to, to be artistic director of, of Deutsche Grammophon. And, and I suppose the, 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 the curious um, uh, way of, of looking at it is that I'd worked for a very rich non-profit organization in Cleveland, Ohio, and an almost bankrupt multinational uh, in, in Deutsche Grammophon, because that was then part of, of Polygram um, and was... You know, maybe in many ways the last five years, whether I contributed to this is another matter, the last five years of an international record business that had, had, had grown and developed so much um, through um, the 60s and 70s, um, particularly that company with, with, its, with its great artists, and then the explosion of CD and what that meant, uh, and then this sense of where do these big ships go? Uh, and the, fascinating time still you know, looking at that period and seeing now where the recording industry is. We might come back to that. And then, and then the big jump um, to the BBC where you've actually been for a long time. I mean, controller of Radio 3 since 98? Yes. Um, no, nobody's asking you to go yet. Um, that's yes. A long, that's a long, I can tell you that's a long time for anybody to hold a controller post in the BBC. So but I've what, still been, what made you do it, Roger? What, you, you could still be at Deutsche Grammophon taking a share of royalties. Well, well I, did, um, I did that thing of, of leaving Deutsche Grammophon without another job to go to. Um, and I, and I, you know, it's interesting now just to sort of try and understand exactly why that might have been. And, I, and somewhere in me might have just sensed that um, you know, I'd done what I could do uh, and that... You know, when at that particular point, Deutsche Grammophon was making about 120 new releases a year. Um, I don't know what it is now, but it's probably not much more than 20 or 25. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, I suppose, looking back, I didn't want necessarily to be associated, you know, with with that sort of direction that the, that the company was taking. Um, and so, you know, the, uh, there with a, with a young family, um, two children that, that we didn't have when, when we left um, um, to go to the, to the States. Uh, and just thinking, well, actually, in, unless one makes the move, then you don't know what all the other options might be. Um, and there were, there were various things that, that I was asked to do, and one of them was to, to, to go back to the BBC. Um, and, so, you know, it, and it felt, in all sorts of ways, <clears throat> not just about coming back to the UK after almost 10 years abroad, but but you know, felt like coming coming home to the to the BBC. Although I've still spent actually longer outside the BBC than I have inside it, because for the first eight years of, of my working life, I was uh, running a, a promotion centre for for British contemporary classical music in, in London and doing some freelance work for the BBC. But that you know, that, that I, I wasn't part of the BBC then as a, as a staff member. Okay, and then in 2007, the proms. So let's talk about the proms now um, for a little while. So two months. I mean, arguably the best um, music festival in Europe or the world. You have 300,000 tickets to sell. How much pressure do you feel to get the attendance figures at something satisfactory enough for the BBC to feel happy and proud? None um, beyond the pressure that, that, that I feel and beyond the pressure of the, the budget requirement, um, which is to get a certain level of, level of income. Um, I mean, I think there's a... I'm sure you, you know this, Mark, there's, a, there's such a broad support and understanding about what the proms is as, a, as an institution and, and that sense of heritage. I mean, the BBC's run it since 1927. Um, and so, you know, what's a, what's a good example of that support? Well, you know, in, in, in all the recent um, uh, need for additional savings, um, flat license fee, all of that sort of funding formula for the next four years, the proms like Radio 3 was the subject of reinvestment money. Um, and, and the reason that, that, that that was there was that the, I suppose, the, the twin aspirations of the proms, which, which are you know, the continuation of the vision that, that Henry Wood and Robert Newman uh, created when they started the forms in 1895, those still remain the same, which is to keep the quality high and the ticket prices low. And the only way in which you can do that is by making certain of the right level of, of investment. And, and that was understood at a very senior level within the, within the BBC. It's very interesting, I mean, looking at it as somebody who's been going for years and years and years, um, I used to pay with Rosie to go and then suddenly find myself getting these free tickets. It's sort of like paradise. 
and now I don't get the free tickets anymore, and I have to rely on Roger. So the next bit, I have to be very careful how I negotiate this bit. But, I mean, several things. I mean, first of all, there are many, many different <coughs> forms of anniversaries that you can choose to celebrate in every prom season. So how do you choose um, your kind of landmark, or if you like, spines of the programme? So I think this year it was Delius, wasn't it? It was one, and Debussy was another. And for those of you who don't know, they were both 150 years old this year. But there are many other ways that you can configure it. So let's just go to kind of big, big central aspects of the problems. How do you work that one out? I mean, it, it, it really is with, with all of my colleagues at the problems a sort of organic process, really. Uh, and you know, the, the, uh, let, let me, I, I'll answer the question, but let me just talk a bit about the time scale of, of the planning. So um, before each prom season has started, the following year is already planned. Um, most of 2014 is done. I know all the visiting groups for 2015. I know, you know when um, Simon Rattle is performing in 2015 and, and also when the rehearsals are likely to be. And at the same time, there are urgent things for tomorrow. So there's a sort of three- to four-year horizon um, with new work. I mean, often that has to be commissioned similarly that far in advance. Um, and, that, and so the, 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 the starting point is about um, visiting orchestras, their schedules, their relationship to other festivals in which they um, take part, so be it Salzburg, be it Luzerne, be it Edinburgh, be it Aix. Um, you know, unless you've got some of that basic grid in place, plus the absolutely essential component of the five uh, BBC orchestras and BBC singers, which, which provide... You know the, the the backbone, but also with all of my colleagues in the in the BBC orchestras and BBC singers, you know the artistic input. You know this is not this is not one person's choice about what goes into the forms, um, and and then you look at all the different proposals that might be coming in, uh, and you know uh, 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 you try to shape some of those so that some sort of pattern emerges. And and I've never been for for something which is the scale. Of the, of the proms. I've never been a, a, a believer in the notion of non-musical themes or strands, because I think you can do that in a, in a week-long festival or in a two-week-long festival. I think it's very hard when you're two months and you're putting on hundreds of events, and particularly you know, the big concerts in the Albert Hall, you will invariably, of course, have more concerts which don't relate to the themes than, than do. And so I've, I've, it's always seemed to me that featured composers and featured artists is very much more a natural part of a festival. You know, it, it's, it's curious that people talk about the proms as a season, and I've always felt that it's the sense of festival um, that we should be trying to, to, to celebrate. And so uh, you know, the anniversary composers is, is just one element of, of that. And you know, there's, it's difficult with anniversary composers because, of course, if you love one of the anniversary composers, you will, of course, expect that the proms will be dominated by that particular composer. If you don't care for the music of that particular anniversary composer, you wonder why on earth the proms is actually taking time um, marking the anniversary. If you, love the, if you love a particular composer, you will also find lots of anniversaries that are worth celebrating. And I have never quite understood you know, the reason to to mark the 60th anniversary of somebody's passing, for example. Um, but, but if you love the... If you, it, it happened, it happened um, this, this year that uh, you know, there was the 50th anniversary of, of, of the death of John Ireland. Now, you know, the reason to put these things shall be... Uh, one of the, one of the, the fine Ireland um, chorus and orchestra pieces into the proms this year was because it, it, it felt like it was you know, a good time to be able to hear that piece again because it hadn't been done for more than 50 years of the proms. Yeah. And those big call pieces suit the Albert Hall very well. Um, but you know, more significant, I think, is to do a piece like Havergal Bryan's Gothic Symphony or Herbert Howell's Hymnus Paradisi, which had never been given at the proms, neither of which were the subject of anniversaries, but in which you can actually stake out more ground to be able to say these pieces are worth hearing. Not that, not that they're great pieces or to overclaim for them, but simply to, to put them on and give them the chance to, to be heard. And you know, when we've done on Radio 3, for example, um, recently the spirit of Schubert genius of Mozart, the, the, the Beethoven experience that, that we started 
these single composer focuses on air back in 2005, significantly they were not around anniversaries. And, and I think that, that helps you claim some of that territory for yourself rather than simply being part of this sort of anniversary industry, which can be rather tiresome, I think. I mean, in general, when you're sorting out the programme, I mean, this is not obviously something that's unique to the proms, but I think it would be interesting to hear. How much of this is you saying to all the various orchestras who want to come or you can induce to come, I want such and such a proportion of new pieces or contemporary music and because everybody who goes to the proms knows the way that pretty frequently you're put in a John Cage between the Beethoven and the Schubert just to make sure we're on our toes. Um, so what's that like, trying to ensure that you're true to an absolute pillar of the proms, which is that there will be contemporary music and there will be new music, knowing that a lot of the audience want you to stick with Beethoven, Schubert, Haydn, and um, whatever it is we agreed, handle both top-rate notch composers. How you do it? Well, you know, what, what, one of the remarkable things about the, about the proms um, is the audience. You know, th this year we've had more commissions and more premieres than ever before. Twenty-seven commissions, um, dozens and dozens of other premieres, um, and in a in a hall. In, in which you can get 6,000 people or close to 6,000 people, we averaged 93%. Uh, you know, in a summer also where museums and galleries and, and theatres um, you know, were, were suffering for all the reasons that we know. Um, so so the, this, this proms, is, the proms audience is, is an extraordinary one and its, its willingness to go with us on a sort of journey of discovery is unlike anything else anywhere in the world and the number of performers who say if only I could take this audience with me wherever I go uh, and you know, to put on you know, not cage between Beethoven or Schubert but to put on an entire cage evening um, and explain what we were doing and to have over 3,000 people there from 6 o'clock in the evening until gone 11 listening to a piece played by 30 cactuses um, um, was, was quite extraordinary with really intense listening and that really wouldn't happen anywhere else and so I mean I think this is also part of course of the proms tradition I mean it's what Henry Wood did you know people think of um, good old Timber as he was affectionately known um, as being this grand conductor particularly of British work and of British tradition but you know, he is the person who conducted the world premiere of Schoenberg Five Pieces Opus 16 you know, he was bringing so much continental European music to, to the proms and, and inviting those, those composers would always want to include what he described as his novelties and so that commitment to new and, and unfamiliar work was there from the, from the very start and, and I suppose you rewrite it um, in a way which is, which is fitting for our time. But do, do you have a sort of secret or public figure um, uh, which you could reveal exclusively to us tonight, which is the number of proms which will have contemporary music in it or will have premieres in it, or how do you... No, do no, it's, I, be, be, because, it, because those, those sorts of formulas are absolute death to the way in which you would plan a, plan a festival. Um, I suppose what's really, what's really important is that, um, you, you, that, that the whole of the proms team knows that it is that mixture of um, the large scale and the distinctive which, which are the sort of two levers that you try to keep in balance. You, you know, Radio 3, the proms, the BBC orchestras could on one level be far, far, far more distinctive than they are but play to nobody. And, and, and frankly, what's the point in doing that? The, the, the main thing is that you work with millions of people and you know, the, the UK reach for the proms is in excess of 15 million people consume the proms across a prom season. And, and in talking to that size of audience, you then want to take them further. So, so Beethoven and Boulez put together the, this summer with, with Barenboim in the West Eastern Divan. Um, that first concert with Boulez Derive, 40 minutes of, of Boulez, was broadcast live on television to 15 European countries, not just live on Radio 3 and live in, 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 in BBC terms. And, and that's what you can then try and do. You work with that scale, and the, you know, the Boulez was an integral part of presenting that particular cycle, uh, and that wasn't part of a, a, a percentage the, the, the most pleasing thing that somebody uh, said to me about the, the, the proms um, planning was that when they opened 
the guide or when they went online and saw the plans that they didn't recognize the programs from anywhere else. And I think that's one of the key distinctive points that, you know, the, where we would challenge um, orchestras coming in and, and conductors and soloists coming in is, is towards that offering of something which is more distinctive and which feels like it's, it's specially created for, for the proms. And that might be playing with a formula, it might be putting you know, particular music late night, it might be putting a three-part concert, it might be putting pieces you might expect in the second half of a concert in, in the first part, you know, what, what, the, um, I, I'm, I'm, I, I fear too retentive about the art of program planning because it's something that absolutely fascinates me and the sense of how you put particular familiar and standard repertoire together. And, and if you just allow me w- one moment to give an example of it um, and where it's fun to work with artists that, can, can, that you can do this sort of planning with. Um, the Gutzenich Orchestra was coming in 2008 um, to, to the proms and that orchestra had premiered Mahler 5 and so it seemed like a fun thing to do to ask them to do Mahler 5 um, and I thought it would be interesting to look and see what, what pieces would, were done in the programme that Mahler 5 was, was premiered and Mahler 5 of course being the new piece was the, was the first piece in the programme <laughs> Um, seems extraordinary to us now, uh, followed by some Schubert songs and a Beethoven Overture Leonore number three. And that was the, that was the program. So, so, so I thought, well, why don't we just simply recreate that um, and, and take the audience on that part of a journey? But the, the concert was on August the 22nd, and if memory serves me right, which, is Stock, which was, would have been Stockhausen's 80th birthday. Um, and so um, we thought, you know, let's actually, again, just provide some additional spice. And so put, made a three-part program. Um, because the Schubert songs were with piano, we asked a number of composers to orchestrate them. So we, we commissioned some new orchestrations of the Schubert songs. We put Stockhausen's Punkter, which is a big 20, 25-minute orchestral piece, into the program as a, as a tribute to, to Stockhausen, and ended with Leonora III. Um, and the only thing I agreed with Marcus Stenz, the, the conductor, was that uh, you know, we, we, we wouldn't be too sorry if when he came out to conduct um, Stockhausen's Punkter after the, the, the first of the, the, the two intervals was over, after he'd done Mahler V, that if the hall was completely empty, well, you know, there, there, there we are. Um, what happened was we told the story about the recreation, we put the, confident, the, the concert on with confidence, we explained what it was, um, Result was that at half past ten, you know, the Albert Hall was still packed. They went on to play a substantial part of Parsifal de Karl Freitag's music as, as an encore. And the audience had gone on a real journey. Um, now, you know, that's a sort of program you simply wouldn't hear anywhere else. And it comes on one part from looking at history and looking at context, but it's also about trying to push the audience further and also take the art of concert programming further. So, I mean, away from Stockhausen to the ukulele orchestra, um, so, I mean, one of the things that you've done with the proms is you've put in all kinds of things under the proms banner, which weren't there before, and encouraged the question, what is a prom? So there's been a Doctor Who prom. Uh, this year there was, rather gloriously, a Desert Island Disc prom. The ukulele orchestra, which was one of the best proms I've ever been to, was a late-night prom, and so on and so forth. And indeed, Jamie Cullum and various other, Blue Peter and so on and so forth. So uh, how far can you stretch the definition of what a prom is, and how do those things fit with your overall conception of the season or the festival? Well, th- those things are key parts of... of the audience development as, as well as recognising, I think, that the proms audience has, as all audiences now do, that broad, that broad taste. Um, and you can see it with the John Wilson Orchestra, and this ex- extraordinary group of, of players, freelance orchestra, they come together basically to play musicals and musical, music theatre. Um, and you know, the, the, the proms audience that comes and loves hearing... Bruckner's Ninth Symphony with the Vienna Philharmonic and Bernard Heitink, also loves high-quality um, orchestral playing in, in, a, in a piece like My Fair Lady, which is as much of a masterpiece in its genre as, it, as is Bruckner Nine. Um, however, those things you've just described are always going to be, to my mind, at the margins of what the proms offers. Uh, and it's very easy to forget that you know, more than 40 years ago, Soft Machine, that 
folk rock group, um, was playing at the proms. Um, you know, Indian classical music was, was in the proms in the, in the 60s. Um, and so you know, the notion of having um, music other than absolutely pure, what we would call Western classical music, um, at, at the proms, that, you know, that, that hasn't been the case for, for many a long year. But, but it is important, I think, to, to be able to, to develop the audience and, and also to be able to, to, to get you know, uh, new audiences in to hear uh, live orchestral music. You know, so if, you, if you'd been at the Wallace and Gromit prom, that yeah. audience, majority of it, was hearing a live orchestra for the first time. Now, I just cherish the thought that people start with Blue Peter or Wallace and Gromit and then end up with the Stockhausen piece that we heard about and that they can do it all very quickly. So the BBC is a great educator, which goes like that. Keep... I mean, you're famously, at least in the BBC, somebody who uh, is utterly, utterly um, calm and equable. But the one time I was near you and I thought you were going to explode was when, I'm fairly sure it was Tessa Jow, um, said, now the problem with the proms is it's a bit elitist. Um, it was Margaret Hodge. It was it? Margaret Hodge. It was. Um, Just to be fair to Tessa Jow. Yes. You were, you were very, 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 very cross. That's the crossest I've ever seen you. Um, and we were all totally dismayed and then realised that it was a gift for you in some ways because she was so out of court. But she may have been aiming at what? The last night, thinking that that was a nationalist jamboree and kept too many people away? I mean, what, what, what do you think she was on about? I have absolutely no idea. Mm. Um, Nor do I. Be- because because if we, I, I know, I think she was, she was raising a really, really important question, which is about audiences and developing audiences and access to classical music and all of that. But then to pick the proms as, to, to, to try and make the case was, was entirely the wrong target. So good subject, you know, wrong, wrong target. And, and, and quite quickly, um, when that happened a number of years ago, um, the, the, the Prime Minister of the day um, became the best possible prom spokesperson you could, you could ever have because he suddenly started speaking for the proms and, and, and correcting, if you like, a, a political line. So it, it might have just been um, you know, a, a, a simple chance remark which, which um, was, was uh, you know, rather out of place. Well, you're not going to find many people here who are going to disagree with you. Um, let's just end this section on the proms in the spirit of my opening vulgarity. Um, Favourite prom in recent years? One you've just oh, sitting there and you've enjoyed the most? I can't. I, 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 can't, I can't do that. Um, well, I'm going to say least favourite prom. That would be much more difficult. Well, no, it's much, much easier to do that. No. Um, <laughs> I, I think what, what's, what's really interesting for me, I, I go to every single prom concert. And so um, there's, you know, and it's a real treat. And, you know, the. To hear that amount of music and, and to be there, um, you know, for every lunchtime, every late night, every, you know, is um, is fascinating. And you can get tired, you know, across across two months. Um, and you know, what's fascinating to me is where you think your veins might be a bit closed, and you, you know, we've all been to, you know, particular performances where we where we might be more sleepy or less attentive or hungry or. Um, uh, or suffering indigestion from the sort of the, the, the hastily um, consumed consumed sandwich, and then suddenly you'll be you're, you know a world will open up and you'll realise just how how powerful that the performance is. Well, I, I, I didn't tell you I was going to ask, but I did have one or two in mind, and just want to see whether you'll respond. So when Dudamel first turned up, mm-hmm. um, I mean the I mean you came into the office the following morning, absolutely sort of bouncing around. Um, you know, management meeting where everybody else was in a narcoleptic state. I mean, you were just saying, you've just got to hear what happened last night. The roof came off. That was the best I've ever heard it. So that, that's one possibility. Um, and then the other is, and it might have been this summer, I mean, Barenboim and the Beethoven Symphony Cycle and the Divan. Um, and, I mean, I've been to see the Divan with Barenboim in previous proms concerts, and there is a special atmosphere because it's so full of context and resonant and all the rest of it and although the proms are always wonderful it struck me that there was something peculiarly brilliant about those sorts of occasions. I mean I don't know whether there are others or whether I'm exaggerating but something else is going on in a hall of 6,000 people and you know that everybody sort of knows that something special is happening when you're there. Yes I, I, and, and, and of course there are, there are so many of those 
um, sorts of events, and, 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 and people will respond to them in different ways. I mean, it, you know, just thinking about this, this summer, and it already seems years ago that, you know, it's only a couple of months of the, 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 ago that the prom's finished. Um, but, you know, the, the Berlin Philharmonic Salmon Rattle, Lutislavsky III, um, the, the Beethoven IV with the Vienna Philharmonic Murray Pariah, um, you know, very, very special. But I'd also single out. Um, and there was something about the, the, when, when you get that sense of the, the quality of listening in that huge round space, when the place is full, um, you know, it does have some you know, odd acoustical properties in, in certain seats, but the atmosphere is unlike any other. And when the place is full and everybody's sitting all the way around, there's a, a focus and an intensity to the listening, um, which means that it's not just for me about those those big-scale moments, but also the points at which you feel the audience you know, being, being drawn in. Um, it happened when um, Maria Jean Piresh played a, a late-night concert of Chopin Nocturnes, and almost, if she heard a cough, she played quieter. And you know, as she got um, through the evening, um, you could feel the audience really just leaning in. And that sense of making the Albert Hall an intimate space was very special. The, the, the atmosphere this season, uh, and it's another example, I, I, I hope, of the sorts of programming that, that I'm, I'm delighted that artists will, will, will accept. Um, to do the trilogy of Vaughan Williams symphonies, four, five, and six, and just that in an evening... Um, the, the place was packed, and, and, and this is, remember, repertoire that people say there's no interest in. Um, and you know, I, I, I'm, I will always bang the drum for, for British 19th and 20th century music as well as contemporary work. Um, there was, a, again, that sense of discovery and journey that people went on. Uh, and you could have heard a pin drop at the end of that... Uh, extraordinary movement, the final movement of Vaughan Williams VI, which is just this sort of sense of desolation. Um, and, and, and to get that sense of the journey and to hear the audience um, just developing its own listening. Nixon in China um, with, with John Adams in the final week, uh, you could just sense the, the, the tension in, in the audience and, and you, can f- you can really feel that. So there are any number of events that I think I would, that really, really um, stick in my mind. I, of course, I'll never forget the, the sheer volume of noise on the last night when, when the audience realised that... Um, those, um, those people who had made Britannia rule the waves in both the water sports of the Olympics and the Paralympics were about to come on stage. Uh, you know, it might have been a moment of, of, of cheese um, at which, at which we, we welcomed them on stage, but a real sense in which you know, that event had brought the whole sort of UK summer to, to, a, to a, a grand climax. Uh, that noise I'll never, ever forget. Okay, just a, a five minutes on Radio 3 and then I'm going to throw it open. Is that, I mean, in, we've already talked about some of the issues about how to balance programmes, but the Radio 3, the kind of particular concern, because there is not a competitor, but there is another classical music radio station in Britain which gets a larger audience. It, of course, doesn't remotely aspire to the breadth, the range, the intellectual depth, um, the patronage of new music, all the things that Radio 3 simply has to do. But it's there, and in the past, they're not under you, in the past, I mean, Classic has been quite a big spectre in the BBC. So talk about how you programme, as it were, against it, or keeping an eye on what it's doing in order to make sure that you're doing the right thing with a licence fee. I, I think they're, you know, they're, they're two entirely complementary radio stations, and, and I think that... you know, friends and, and colleagues at Classic would, would say exactly the same thing. I mean, when, if you were just to describe them, uh, you know, what, the, what the two radio stations do, um, they are entirely complementary. And so you know, the, 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 the clear blue water is, is, is absolutely there. I mean, if you, if you just think of... Um, you know, Classic has its business model, and because it's a commercial station... It, it, had to, it has to watch very carefully for its advertisers, for its audience size, 
Um, and you know, the, the, I wasn't around in the, in the UK when, when it first started. Um, but I can imagine that at the point at which it was offering live concerts and contextual programming, you know, some, some colleagues on Radio 3 might have been looking and thinking, blimey, what, what's going on? Um, you know, when you now look at the, the, the two stations, you, um, you know, the standard commercial model of the, the, the playlist, uh, the computer-driven playlist, um, and offering that, that uh, set of um, uh, classical music tracks. And at Radio 3, you know, which could, you know, quite recently, when we were looking at how do we save the money that we need to save in the coming years, we could quite easily have looked and said, well, you know, should we do you know, all that amount of speech? Should we be having you know, full-length uh, plays on Radio 3? Should we be commissioning all the new work that we commission? Should we be having jazz? Should we be having world music? It would have been very easy to narrow the range, just say, well, let's just be a, a, a classical music Well, there, there are people who want you to do that. There's a group, and please don't join this group. Please don't join this group. There's a group called Friends of Radio 3, um, whose sole purpose in life is to torture you. And they've been doing it for years and years and years. Um, and what they say is, well, we don't need all this stuff on Radio 3, partly because we've got Radio 4 doing all of that sort of speechy stuff, and partly because all of this sort of WOMAD world music thing you're doing just gets in the way of a diet of classical music and shouldn't do jazz. No, but to be fair, that, that's, that's, that's not what... That, I mean, it, I, there, isn't, there isn't one view which, which, which comes from them because, they're, because the, the group isn't, isn't one lobby group and nor, are, nor is there sort of one, one set of aims. Um, because, because some of the, the feedback that I get from some members of, of that particular group will say it's wonderful, for example, that... Um, T- tonight, uh, we, we kick off a 30-part series on the Anglo-Saxons. Now, could that exist on Radio 4? Possibly it could. Um, are those, those, those members of the, the Friends of Radio 3 very happy that, it, that Radio 3 is doing that? Absolutely, because it plays to the heritage of the third programme. Yeah. Similarly, there will be people who love jazz, and again, it's back to that business of the lobby group. If you love something, you'll find a reason for it to exist, and, and the sort of jazz programming that exists on Radio 3 is unlike the, the, the jazz programming that exists on Radio 2, and so that's, that's part of that broader world. So, so I think it's, it's a more complicated or, or more subtle picture about individual um, sort of programming okay. than, than, than you're suggesting. All right, br- br- briefly, two more. I mean, one, one is um, the role of the audience. I mean, you've changed not... This isn't a huge architectural change, but tonally, you're bringing the audience a bit more into some of the programming. Um, what's all that about? Well, if you've got over two million listeners a week, um, you know, once a day, it might be nice to hear one of them um, actually requesting a particular piece of music for us to play. So that's what we do. Um, and the the interest from, from the audience in doing that is not only, and it you know, goes back to, to my roots, where there were more request shows on, on Radio 3 than there are now, because there aren't any now. Um, but you know, this morning, uh, a, a wonderful request from a, from a listener for the William Hillstone Piano Concerto. Now, how many people here have heard the William Hillstone Piano Concerto? Has anybody heard the Daniel Jones Cello Concerto? or Frank Bridge Dance Rhapsody, or Eric Chisholm's first piano concerto, all of which were played on Radio 3 today. Um, you know, in full, Eric Chisholm's first piano concerto, Daniel Jones' cello concerto, Frank Bridge Dance Rhapsody, and this morning, the caller asking for William Hellstone piano concerto. You know, arguably, one of those great lost figures, Hellstone, didn't write that much, um, d- died tragically early. Um, and so... You know, what, what is there not to like about a, a listener saying, you know, and, and after all, the, we, we are paid for by the, the listeners, having the opportunity to be able to say, I'd like to hear this particular no, I, piece I, of music. I just thought I'd throw it in as my so Jeremy Paxman moment, <coughs> my single moment of impersonation of being a bloodhound. Um, one last, and then we go to the audience. It is alleged um, that the one form of classical music with which you have some difficulty is Spanish guitar music. Mm. <laughs> I, I think I'm actually on public record as, 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 as having said that it is one of my blind spots. Um, but, but if you were to have listened to today's Wigmore Hall concert, live in Wigmore Hall every Monday lunchtime, um, you would have heard a, a, a rather wonderful classical guitar concert um, with some fine Spanish pieces being played. 
which just shows um, that, that I'm not in control of the music policy at all at, at Radio 3, and, and we operate a, a very, very broad church. Um, it is important to have, to have blind spots, um, and in, indeed, you know, maybe one day I will come to, in fact, almost any music for, for guitar, um, uh, but um, I... I, I I say that just to get some response. Uh, it is music that I would like to have at my funeral, because obviously I won't be there to hear it. <laughs> um, um, well, as you're not here to usher your funeral in, let me stop at that and see. We, got, we can certainly take some questions from the audience. So does anybody like to ask? There's a gentleman over here in the middle. If we can get a microphone over there. Max is on his way to you. <coughs> Roger, you spoke about the fact that no prom season can be everybody's favourite season and how it is part of your role and um, indeed the BBC's role to keep all these preferences in play. Um, however, there's rarely, concern, rarely a concern about the basic level of quality. Um, there is, as it were, a benchmark standard. For instance, uh, performers should be able to play all the right notes. Um, what then was the rationale in inviting Cameron Carpenter to play not just one but both of the organ recitals at this year's proms, um, a decision that I may say caused some frustration, um, it, not to say anger in some circles, um, you probably read in the Times. Um, does this represent a sea change in the way BBC views the organ um, as something maybe not to be taken seriously? I should add that I'm a serial season ticket holder and I don't see that changing. Yeah. Um, I think there's, there's always a danger in... in um, uh, looking at any particular single decision and making up some sort of grand theory to, 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 to prove a point. Um, uh, the invitation to, to Cameron Carpenter was, was simply this. Uh, he's one of the most talked about figures in the organ community. He, he takes his place alongside a number of other organists. And if you think in recent years, whether it be... Um, Gillian Weir, or whether it be James O'Donnell, or whether it be Stephen Farr, um, you know, there, there have been very, very distinguished players who've given organ recitals, uh, and that will continue to be the case. Um, I, I, I do think it's important that that, that that particular instrument, now so magnificently restored, um, should uh, have its moment in, in the sun, and therefore some of those, those afternoon recitals um, have been a key part of our, of our planning. Um, and you know, it's, a, it's a perfect example of the proms acting as a, as a catalyst. And you don't do that, I think, in, as a catalyst for, for then discussion, conversation. Um, and you, I, I don't think you, you ever do that in a position of offering something which you feel is you know, completely musically cavalier or, or non-professional. Um, but you know, he is clearly a, a, a flamboyant figure who divides opinions. And um, you know, the, the, the score for me after the concert, uh, talking to organists and audience members alike, was about 50-50. Uh, and so, it, so, it, you know, so, so the discussion raged. And um, he's just a fascinating musical figure. You don't, you don't get to be the resident organist of the Berlin uh, Philharmonie unless you're a very good and powerful musician. Um, however, um, you know, what, what his performances did throw up and do go... Uh, and, and follow if you haven't seen any of the performances of Cameron Carpenter, uh, absolutely a, a extraordinary figure, and who is trying to redefine um, the organ. But there will always be a place for a broader range of players. More, um, at least. And it, it, I just want to see if there are, I can take two or three in a row. So there's one at the front, um, and there's uh, one at the back. So we'll take those. We'll, we'll take one at the front and one at the back, and then we'll do them together. So, um, okay, back first, then front. Um, I'm just wondering what are the main um, skills you need as a leader of such a big organisation? Right. What, 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 are, what are the skills you need to lead such a big organisation, meaning Radio 3 and the Proms, Annalise? It's my impression that you're no longer recording live performances as, uh, as once you did, which seems to me one of Radio 3's great strengths, that they have this archive uh, of live performances. Right, so, so briefly on both of those, um, okay. wh why are you so good at what you do? Um, uh, I'm just being generous in the translation, but I think that's what it amounts to. And then what is the balance of live and have you diminished it and what's all that about on, on Radio 3 at the moment? I, I think um, what, what, what you need is, is great, great teams uh, and, 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 and great colleagues. And 
and I think that um, you know, if, if, if you look to you know, the, 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 the BBC orchestras, the BBC singers, the proms, um, Radio 3, you know, they're, they're relatively small teams. I mean, the, the, the team that runs the proms, even at, even at its height, is less than 25 people. Um, now, you know, there is a broader BBC set of teams in terms of broadcasting radio, television, online. Um, but you know, you, it, it's back to, back to, to me, to, to principles of, of leadership, which is, which is about uh, non-hierarchical, but actually a, a, you know, a, a clear but light hand on the, on the tiller. Um, and you know, passion, I think, you, what, what's the most important thing? Passion for the subject. Uh, and, and, and therefore, if you have a passion for the subject, what you want to do is share it with as many people as possible. And live life music, the balance of live music and the schedule, has it changed in recent years? It's, got, it's gone up, actually. So obviously we're not getting our message out um, because you know, for last year or just over a year ago, um, we took the decision to have every single night uh, a, a live concert. And so now the live music is 57% of our, of our music output. Um, which I think is the highest it's ever been. Um, and, you know, what... Th- there's a, there's, there, is a, there is a challenge that comes with that, which, of course, is if you decide to be at a live concert every single weekday evening, uh, unfortunately, sometimes concerts happen on the same night, and therefore we have difficult decisions to take. Uh, and what often it means is that you, know, you can't do what we might have done many years ago, which is to, to record a concert and then put it out many weeks later. Um, I, I think that's a, you know, just a, a, an acceptable um, consequence of the decision to be there and giving people the best seat in the house. Shameless plug coming up. For example, tomorrow night you can be live at Covent Garden for the first of the Ring Cycle operas, and we will be uh, live for the entire Ring Cycle. So uh, tomorrow, Rheingold, Thursday, Valkyra, next week, Siegfried and, and Goethe Demrong. It plays havoc with the schedule, but frankly, that's what live music does. Well, having, having just and, seen and it, I reinforce your plug. It's absolutely terrific. But the, but the important point is that you know, the Opera House is a, is a small theatre. Um, not many people can get there. Not many people have the opportunity to get there for all sorts of different reasons. And so a publicly funded organisation coming together with a publicly funded broadcaster and bringing the, those particular performances paid for by all to millions of people is the best possible service. Now, do we do that for audience figures? No, because we know that for many people, the, the, the notion of sitting for hours on end listening to Wagner, which is going to be a real challenge come 2013, as we know when the bicentenary hits, um, you know, we, we, we wouldn't choose to do that if our sole measure were about trying to drive audience figures up. You take a very different approach. But well, I can tell you, in this audience, to, I mean, there are a lot of people who are here tonight, I know them by name, who are going to be listening tomorrow. Um, I can take one or two more, um, Sarah, and then uh, Lady in Blue in the middle, but we start at the front and then take these two, and then perhaps we'll conclude after that. Mine's a very, ba- Mine's a very basic one for a Mancunian. United or City? <laughs> <coughs> I, I support only one because because I'm um, fascinated and passionate by uh, b- b- uh, about rugby and cricket, uh, not in that order. Um, I support only one football team, which is anybody but United. Good man. I have a little subsid again as a proud Mancunian. How do you feel about your brother defecting to West Yorkshire for at least part of his working life? Um, uh, Where I have Stravin- Stravinsky f- um, is famously um, quoted as saying, although probably Robert Kraft said it, about the use of um, the narrator in Persephone. Um, w- wonderful ballet, but uh, you know, probably not the best thing to have a, a speaker um, narrating, narrating through it. And when asked about his use of the narrator, he, he answered with, with an answer I think is appropriate to, to, to my brother going to, to, to live in and work in Yorkshire, which is, sins can't be undone, only forgiven. I, mean, I know you're Radio 3 and not um, BBC TV 4, but um, can you say anything about why we don't have more live proms on TV? Yeah. Um, it's, it's about um, the editorial control, if you like. Um, and if we were to have... If we were to have taken with our, with our colleagues at BBC4 who do, that, who do that scheduling, if we'd have taken the decision that they should all be live um, and um, 
the, the, the scheduling pattern this year on BBC Four was Thursdays and Fridays, and then uh, BBC Two is on Saturday. What, what you then do is maybe miss some of the choices that BBC Four colleagues might have felt the audience would want. And uh, the, the, the scheduling would therefore have been all over the place, not cost-effective necessarily to do it that way, but also you'd miss a late-night concert here or an early evening concert there. So the regularity of that schedule and knowing that Thursdays and Fridays, Fridays on, on BBC Four were the time to go and similarly BBC Two's on Saturdays, I think gives you uh, a greater opportunity to, to um, take the editorial decisions about which concerts you really want to cover. Um, I mean, to give you an obvious example, if, if you were in the last week um, to have only gone with live, you would have missed you know, an awful lot of things that might other, we might otherwise have said, oh, those are particular highlights, why, why can't you do those? So, you know, and also with the, with the amount of listening that is now and viewing that is now happening outside real time through the iPlayer, it does give you a real opportunity to be able to sample live on Radio 3, live in the hall, or possibly a recorded um, uh, from on, on television as well. Okay, there's a gentleman at the back. As long as it's a, a question that ends with a question mark in his brief, and then Roger gives a brief answer, and we'll make that the last question. So, thank you. Back. Uh, one of my favourite programmes on Radio 3 is Words and Music, and I think one of the most interesting things is that it has no presenter. What, for you, is the main roles and functions of presenters on Radio 3? Um, I, th- I think they're, they're different in each place. I'm, gla- I'm glad you, you, you appreciate Words and Music. I mean, I think it is one of the, the great jewels in our, in our schedule um, and it's, it's, it, it's one of the programmes that um, our, our producers love to work on. Um, they have you know, a special amount of time to try and put together if, if you don't know, this is a, this is a sequence of um, literature, not just poetry but also um, other literature and, um, and, and music as, as you say are unpresented um, I think presenters have a number of different functions de- depending on their, their particular programmes uh, obviously for a radio station breakfast and, and drive time are the two key parts which sort of help define a radio station uh, unusually for Radio 3 that live music in the evenings is something where um, our audience also sticks with it. Most of the, the traditional patterns of, of uh, listening at a radio station is you know, to sort of trickle off. So you're high at breakfast and then trickles off and trickles off and then by 7 o'clock in the evening television's taken over. That's not the case with, with Radio 3 where that listening is sustained. It, it, it uh, blips up a little bit around lunchtime as other stations do and then maintains its audience in the evening. So presenters for live concerts, obviously, they're the eyes and eyes and ears um, and you know presenter like Donald McLeod for Composer of the Week it's, it's that additional contextual material but um, they're, they're, they're sort of horses for courses and you know, I, I think the, the, the sense of authority one uh, worn rather lightly um, is, in, is incredibly important you know, the, the, the one thing about presenters on the radio and this is um, just one of those facts that one's got to, to celebrate as, as well as constantly worry about is that you know, most consumption of the radio is, is, is solitary. You know, we, we don't tend to sit as we might with, with television you know, as, as groups of family or friends. Most of that is one-to-one. Um, and so it's, it's in the bathroom, it's in the bedroom, it's in the kitchen, it's in the car. And we develop that one-to-one relationship, which actually means that you know, there's a reason why people shout at the radio, because you think that it's actually being done to you if there's something you don't like. And that might be about a tone of voice, it might be about a particular accent, it might be something which is said which is incorrect. You know, all of these things happen, but you have a, a direct relationship, I think, um, between the presenter uh, and what is happening. And you, you, I, I, I got a, 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 an email quite recently when somebody said, I think you have an anti-handle policy. Please um, reply to me and let me know where I stand. And there was a, there was a you know, and that might seem on, on one level rather odd, but actually it's something which is incredibly important. Because well, it bring, brings us hugely full circle, because didn't we start with Haydn or Handel and you ducking it and then saying Handel, and now I know why. You've made somebody very happy. No, well, um, I, th- I think just that... Can I just finish with one thing? One. Which is the, the range of, of Radio 3 and the joy of working at, at Radio 3 and the joy of working with the audience. Um, uh, th- three days ago, uh, on our log of calls with feedback coming in, there were four messages. And the first one said, uh, we loved the breakfast programme yesterday. Uh, what a fantastic programme. Um, 
Petrox a great presenter, back to the, to the point. Um, uh, that Wagner concert from, from Manchester was, was terrific. Um, Juan Jomena, the new principal conductor, um, seems to be doing a very good job. Um, the, the third one said that they liked the drama that particular evening um, uh, that they'd caught up again on iPlayer. And the fourth one asked for more programs about Chomsky and generative grammar. Now, that's an audience that it will be wonderful to carry on working with, and a real pleasure. Very good. We, we must let you go home and shout at your radio, as instructed by the controller of Radio 3. Um, this is the first of these talks that will be podcast, so you can go back and hear why Roger adores Spanish guitar music at your leisure. Um, I mean, we used to argue about who had the best job in broadcasting. I thought I had the best job in broadcasting. He thought he had the best job in broadcasting. Um, the only disadvantage of the Radio 4 job that I could really detect was that I couldn't quite listen to as much Radio 3 as I had done before. And one of the joys of not being the controller of Radio 4 anymore is I can now listen to more Radio 3. Um, so, son of St. Peter's, as we now call you, um, uh, I just wonder whether uh, you would all join me in lending a hand to our fabulous controller of Radio 3, controller of the proms and speaker tonight, Roger Wright. Roger Wright.